Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer. Uh, today we have a very special guest, in fact we're very honoured to have uh, Don Strasheim. Don, welcome to the podcast. Maz, thank you very much, nice to be with you. We're very, very honoured to have Don. So Don uh, has been with, uh, follows uh, China as a China policy analyst for many, many years now, uh, joined ISI in 2009. And previous to that, he started his career as a, an economist at Merrill Lynch and then uh, decided to move to LA, which uh, meant many, many uh, early, <laughs> early nights and late nights um, uh, covering, covering China from LA uh, with the Milken Institute and then obviously then started up his own China consultancy. So uh, uh, before joining ISI, so Don, um, just a real honor to have you and also a real honor that uh, you will be retiring uh, shortly. So uh, uh, this may well be one of the one of the last podcasts that we'll have you on. Maybe we'll have you on afterwards as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe so, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to, happy to do it. it. It may be the last podcast I do. Um, <laughs> uh, I finally decided, uh, so we've known each other uh, for a long time, was uh, I finally decided that if I worked until I was unable to work, I would probably then also be unable to play. And I thought that doesn't really sound like the best, uh, best plan. And uh, I'm still completely engaged in my work. I don't think I've uh, lost any of my uh, capacity, but um, uh, it's time to spend more time with uh, my wife and my golf game and my dog and uh, whatever else I want to do. So absolutely very well uh, deserved and an excellent career that you've had. Um, so I, I want to obviously use this opportunity, given that you've uh, a long time uh, China watcher and uh, uh, analyst and, and can mix one of the great things that you can do is mix, I guess, Western perspectives and, and Chinese perspective. You started your career in, um, uh, in 1997, just around, or covering, sorry, um, uh, China and the ASEAN, uh, Asian market, just around the ASEAN uh, crisis, maybe some parallels here as well. But um, um, just, just take us back to those very early days, um, Don, what, what made you, um, decide to to pivot to towards the Far East and 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 be a, you know a China specialist. Well, I so I'd been Merrill's global chief economist for twelve years, doing the kind of things that that uh, that entails uh, on the road, maybe half the time traveling all over the world. You know, going to London for a dinner and coming back the next morning, and on and on, and. Um, uh, got a chance to go out and uh, run the Milken Institute for Mike. Um, it's a not-for-profit uh, think tank. I'd been at Fort Econometrics, uh, the think tank at the uh, University of Pennsylvania with uh, Lawrence Klein uh, before Merrill. And um, I thought this is an opportunity to kind of uh, spend more time on uh, the research and a little bit less on uh, marketing. And... Uh, First day on the job was July 1, the day of the Taibot crisis. <laughs> I didn't cause it, uh, but uh, you know that was the timing. And so by uh, six months into that, Mike gave me the 
luxury. I'll always be thankful to him for uh, to kind of do what I wanted to do as well as run the Institute. I decided that uh, China, which was then interesting, would ultimately become important. And so I thought instead of just being a uh, kind of a global uh, macro guy uh, that I would make China a niche uh, specialty. No one was thinking about China then. It was an early call, but a good call uh, and because it's become so important. And um, it's always, as we know, it's always changing. The politics are, uh, are changing. Um, it's not like uh, the West. Uh, there is no interest in sort of adopting the US model, if you will. And um, so that's uh, kept me on my toes and busy for all this time. And, and every major company I suspect that you guys own has one link or another. And all everybody on this podcast to uh, China. Uh, all these big Western companies produce and distribute and market and sell and employ and source in uh, China. So that's how I got into it. And it keeps changing. Probably will, I suspect will continue to. Yeah, no, a lot has changed over that period. So um, what are some of your kind of early observations when you started? I guess this was, um, uh, I always think of um, um, the awakening of China. We, we at EFG actually put our first investments into China, dedicated China investments in 2003, just during the SARS crisis, actually, because we just saw the opportunity to uh, to do something at that time. But what about before that time? You know, in the in the late 90s, they had all sorts of issues. They were going economic issues that were going through across the Asian markets. We had the Hong Kong crisis. What, what are the early observations you had? You know, when you first started. Well, I uh, I'll go back even to the mid 80s. I had my first trip was in uh, early mid uh, mid 80s, and the one thing I remember most about it was uh, the airport at uh, Beijing, now wow. Capital International Airport. And at the time it was unheated wow. and it had seven of these old round uh, luggage carousels and where the bags would come tumbling down this uh, and spin around seven for the entire airport, wow. uh, unheated. And the road, it was a two lane road, one lane each way from the airport to, uh, to Beijing. Six or eight years later, I go and um, going back and forth. And when I land, uh, they're working on the road. And there must have been 5,000 people a mile wow. working on this 20-mile mile road. And there was not a piece of mechanical equipment beyond just a wheelbarrow in sight. It was all manual. No you know, earth movers or any of that stuff. And then I come back uh, six months later and it's completely done. Mm. And it's uh, perfect. So they knew what they had. They, they knew that they had the potential if they could just simply uh, um, move gradually up the value chain. Uh, they knew they could be a real, uh, a real force. They knew that was the way to raise the standard of living and everybody even if you don't believe all the China statistics, everybody who uh, uh, watches China knows that they've grown faster than any other country in the world for the last 40 years. It's, a, it's been a phenomenon. It's not our model, but it's their model and it's worked uh, just 
fantastic for their people. Mm. I was going to say that uh, Beijing Airport, you know, winter, my God, that does get to about minus 20, I think. Well, certainly I've been there when it's been minus 20. That must have been yeah, some cold yeah. airport. <laughs> yeah, I, I, one of those early trips, uh, I took my wife with me and we went up to the Great Wall. And it was in January or whatever. It was so icy. Anybody who's been to the Great Wall knows there's some really steep places. It was windy and you couldn't even walk. It was completely all ice. You couldn't even walk without hand over hand on the uh, on the handrail. So it's it's cold in the winter and it's hot and muggy in the summer, just like Houston or uh, Singapore. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, um, so let's so. I guess Jim O'Neill, I guess in the early 2000s coined, you know, brick um, as a, as a, yeah. as a phrase, which obviously really um, educated people around um, uh, China and obviously the emerging markets were coming out of their slumber uh, or the difficult period um, at the late, um, late nineties. And then obviously China started to, to really take off. What were the kind of key catalysts in that early stage that, uh, really catapulted China, you know, to, to where it is today? I think um, uh, it's, it's really the people. They are, um, and, and you see it right now with the COVID and so forth. They're really quite compliant. They believe in their uh, leadership. Uh, one could say that uh, if they don't believe in their leadership, why um, they'd better be uh, quiet or whatever. But it, they believe in the leadership and they're willing to uh, follow the, uh, the direction and guidance. And uh, the leadership figured out fairly quickly that infrastructure was going to be, uh, that's a necessary but not sufficient condition for them to grow year after year after year. So they, over the next uh, the 20 years, they built a east-west, uh, north-south uh, highway network that's uh, limited access. And they built a uh, two rail networks, east-west, north-south, one for high-speed rail now, still working on it, and the other one, uh, conventional rail for, um, uh, for freight, airports, seaports, subways, sewer systems, water systems. I can remember, uh, you know, 20, 15 years ago, even uh, go, I traveled widely in uh, China uh, over the years, go to some city I've never been to before and land. And I see this airport when we're taxiing that looks like it must have a hundred gates and it has two or three planes there. Mm. And they said, boy, this was, looks like a mistake. And you go back there now and it's full. So they have a they have a long term uh, vision and um, uh, they focused on it. They have uh, they have policies. I think in the in the U.S. Uh, too often it looks to me like we have fiscal results, not fiscal policies. Uh, that's there's a real difference, and it's benefited China a great deal. So. Um, I always think of certainly my journey around China as kind of part one and a part two. So part one, if you like, were the early days, 2003, maybe all the way up to kind of 2000 uh, and uh, you know, 12 or 13. Obviously, that was um, a particular regime that handled the, the, the financial crisis reasonably well, although, uh, you know, there was payback subsequently 
um, in terms of the uh, strong stimulus and withdrawing stimulus. Talk us a little bit about that, you know, global financial crisis. What what are the key things that really set them apart compared to other countries? Well, the 08, 09, uh, they were hurt, but nothing like uh, like the West was hurt. Um, uh, they they did not have uh, um, the kind of exposure to the West uh, uh, that many other countries did. They were they were a supplier, they were a source, so they produced produced goods and. Um, I like to think of China as some, in some ways uh, like a giant manufacturing plant. They, uh, they import commodities, put the stuff in their manufacturing facility, turn the crank, uh, produce a product and ship the product out, either a intermediate product or a final product to uh, buyers across, uh, across the world. So they didn't have the financial uh, links. If, if, if countries in the West, uh, uh, companies in the West failed, of course, uh, that hurt China too, but they didn't have the financial uh, exposure that most, uh, that most did. And I think that continues to this day to be something that, that's important. If you just think of this most recent COVID uh, period, what they focused on is trying to be the number one, uh, number, first choice. Uh, as a manufacturing uh, a place where companies can buy product reliably, they know it's going to get produced and uh, uh, shipped out, and that's made up for the weakness in consumption and housing and all the rest. Um, then, obviously, we had a change in leadership uh, in 2013, um, and then I guess a new era sort of started. Uh, if you like, a, one that was um, uh, maybe curbing back some of the excesses that um, had come before, um, because certainly created, um, um, I, I guess, um, challenges with respect to, um, uh, to, to leadership, to stability, um, you know, uh, around that period. Um, I recall if um, that... Uh, you know, lunch, you know, extravagant lunches uh, were banned. Gift giving was banned uh, within uh, government um, uh, offices. I think it's probably one of the earlier policies of uh, President Xi. And then, um, and then um, you know, uh, that kind of rolled on. Um, how would you contrast, you know, um, government policy, you know, pre and, and post Xi? Well, so we in the West have had these uh, these up and down economic cycles, and we have in the U.S. you know political parties with very different views and leaders of all different uh, uh, sorts. Uh, China has had um, these very long leadership uh, cycles. Uh, you know, Chairman Mao was a um, you know, the leader in the uh, Civil War, they won the Civil War in 1949. He was a political strong man like no other. He made, uh, he ran the country. Uh, and first, I should go back and say, people need to remember that in China, the party, the Communist Party is the hand that has all of the power and the government is the glove that is manipulated by the hand. 
So in the Civil War, uh, the communists won. They had to create a government to manage the country, and they, the party's own interest. So that's still the nature, party over, over hand. Uh, and, and Mao was a political strongman, cultural revolution, great leap forward, probably the most damaging social experiments in the history of the world in terms of the number of people who were, were uh, damaged or lost in one way uh, or another. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, in the uh, uh, later in the uh, after the Cultural Revolution, uh, was a real reformer, and he took the country a long way. Um, uh, and I think, in many ways, is the most important figure, historical figure in China, in any kind of a positive uh, way. And then now we've got uh, Xi Jinping. And uh, he is a political strongman. I like to tell people, uh, if you liked uh, Chairman Mao in the 1960s, you'll love Xi Jinping in the 2020s because that's who he is. And he has, um, uh, he's gone after, and I, I sort of understand this, everybody wants to have their own people, supporters, not doubters in their own organization. So he systematically has gone about finding people in positions of party leadership, high and low in the country, that are backers, uh, backers of his. And he is a surveillance guy. Um, uh, that is, China wants to know what everybody is doing, citizen or uh, expat visitor alike, what everybody is doing in China, all the time in as close to real time as possible. That's, that's the surveillance that uh, China uh, has and, and that's their view. And um, uh, it's not, not likely to change. And he, is a, he is, has controlled the media. And there are people who I used to see in China who I, I never see anymore. I haven't been back for two years because of COVID, but I but I don't see them because I don't think it's uh, quite frankly uh, in their best interest to be seen seeing me, this uh, outsider. And and people are going to find out that it's a lot more difficult now, post COVID, to uh, have meetings and talk to people. And meetings with government officials by people from the West is going to be rare, <laughs> indeed. So lots of changes, and um, but it we're back to a uh, an era in which Xi Jinping is the man, and he's going to uh, stay that way. And now we've got uh, the end of his second five year term coming up in uh, in October of this year. So. Um... Uh, so I think the you know, I guess policy direction from from our from his perspective is um, I guess quite clear. Obviously, that's meant that um, the kind of internet sector. You now I recall going to to China, meeting companies, and they would um, in you know they would always complain about uh, typically larger companies that were squashing them or uh, using underhand tactics to uh, 
to uh, to take advantage. Um, and um, uh, I won't name the companies, but you know there was a real eye opener for me, at least anyway, uh, when uh, when you're meeting companies. Um, and you know, it was clear to me that such practice would not exist in the US or, or in Europe uh, or, or other countries because it would be anti-competitive, it would be monopolistic um, and quite blatant, <laughs> I'd say as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And so um, so I, um, I guess for me, the crackdowns we saw on the Chinese internet names were not a big surprise given what I had also witnessed myself in terms of kind of leading practice. And it always seemed that this was um, odd. Um, and I'll say one would also just wrap it up in, oh, this is emerging markets, um, which is the typical response. Um, what, were this, what was the kind of sequence of this unraveling of, say, the education sector uh, initially, and then obviously uh, the technology sector, and uh, more specifically, the 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 multi-billionaires um who had actually gained a lot of power over the over the previous uh, you know decade or so so this is what every investor now i think needs to pay attention to and try to understand as best uh, as best they can um uh there are uh, china's done a variety of different I'll, I'll cite four different things that they have done here over the last uh uh, year or two, all four of which are really quite uh, quite different, and we often, uh, outside looking in, uh, kind of conflate all these into regulatory matters, uh, and in the Western view, overreach by the uh, leadership, bad idea, anti markets, anti West, and all that, and and uh, we think it's much more nuanced than that. So first, uh, the Ant Group IPO that was going to uh, sort of like 18 months ago now, that was stopped for a, uh, you know, the day before uh, it was scheduled uh, for a particular reason. And that was that Beijing was fearful that there could potentially uh, spring out of that some kind of financial sector risk and highly leveraged that's the last thing they want. So they concluded that stopping it uh, is better than uh, just letting it uh, uh, letting it happen. The second is Alibaba. Uh, Alibaba got whacked because um, Beijing felt they were abusing their monopoly power, not because they had monopoly power, but because Beijing felt they were abusing it. And so they, in principle, uh, the thought process was, we'll put a collar on, uh, on BABA. Now, BABA won't grow as rapidly, but that will leave room for other startup, newer companies who will take BABA's place and who will likely, in turn, invest and create more jobs and innovate more than Baba would while it was exercising its monopoly power. So entirely different. Third, the third one was Didi, the ride, uh, you know, the car hailing service. That was because, that was stopped as we know also, um, because Baba has 
information, uh, uh, Aditi has information that Beijing does not want to land on the desk of the SEC in the US or even more likely the CIA. They know Baba Aditi has every trip. They know when you or I or anybody, origin, destination, time and place where I go from to, and that's a vast, it's a massive network. And there's millions of Chinese officials who use DD all the time. So they said, we don't want this. And so that's, uh, that's over. And then the last was a tutoring issue to uh, kind of basically uh, cut it off at the knees. This was because we believe Xi Jinping wanted to, to demonstrate to the people that he was doing something to try to address the demographic crisis that they have. One child policy has been a disaster. Uh, their labor force is gonna fall every year for the next 20 years, 30 years, maybe uh, longer than that. Uh, children are expensive. The fertility rates way below the replacement rate. So let's do something to try to collar the high ever higher cost of uh, having children and education and so forth. So they were all different, all had different uh, 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 goals. And um, we're now in an, a, a, uh, an important political year in China. I would not be surprised if there were a, a couple more initiatives between now and October when uh, Xi Jinping's second term uh, uh, ends. But um, these were very these were very different, and uh, investors just decided the whole internet sector is it's just uninvestable. I think it still is because we don't know, but it won't be forever. And more important, the hard tech sector we think is completely investable still, mm. and China can't can't achieve their goals if they don't make real progress and team up with the West on technology, mm. hard and soft. Yeah. So, so where do you think that, cause I think it's quite an important question. Where do you think that goes from here? Because I think, you know, I think it's quite clear they've recognized that uh, certainly in sort of uh, technology and, and hard technology you describe it is, um, is absolutely kind of critical because I think they, in some respects underinvested in that side of the equation over the last you know, 10 or 15 years relative to, AI software and um, you know call it soft technology where you know, clearly they're they're advanced you know uh, I made a mistake of walking into a Starbucks in Beijing with some money and uh, the lady I went to pay for my coffee the lady looked at me and said what on earth are you doing just get out of my store you know <laughs> so um, uh, because they wanted you know Alipay or or or, right. or whatever it may be to um, to pay for the coffee and you know dare you give me cash. Um, right. So, um, and and that side is clearly very advanced. They probably the most advanced, I would say, in terms of gaming, um, in terms of um, uh, artificial intelligence, you know, um, surveillance recognition, all of those things. Um, they, they, they're, they're kind of far advanced, and, and their apps are far more advanced. Um, right. Than, than any apps we have in in in, in Europe or, or the United States, um, but it to me it's quite interesting that they haven't really, you know, broken through on the um, on the hard tech side. 
that clearly is a focus, but where do you think that's going? Where, where does where are the areas that they're going to invest in, you know, over the next five to ten years? Well, you know, semis, semiconductors is is it, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and they are they are way behind. They've been talking about this. If you look back at uh, their five-year plans, which are very, they now call them five-year programs, very instructive documents. There's English uh, versions uh, available. Um, they're much more instructive than they were five or 10 or 15 or 20 years ago and earlier. Um, uh, but they, they, they know, but they have, they just can't catch up because any progress they make uh, the West makes, uh, you know, even more progress. Mm. TSMC is an example. Uh, we all, uh, we all know, by the way, on that, we don't believe China is going to touch Taiwan. It's a porcupine. Do not touch. Um, uh, there would be global outrage. Uh, I think more than the global outrage of recent with, uh, Russia and Ukraine, because, Taiwan is simply much more uh, much more important to all of the uh, all of the world. <coughs> Excuse me. So we think they will continue to try to catch up, but uh, don't think they ever will. Um, but uh, um, it is implausible that China could reach any of their economic goals if they don't remain uh, connected to the West. So. They're not going to do anything. People talk about rare earth elements and China could cut the West off. Well, they could, but this would be massive domestic collateral damage. So they will just continue to be, be behind, continue to try, but they're not going to catch up. Why do you think they just can't catch up? What's the, what's the challenge for them that they can't overcome here? Well, um, the U.S. desperately does not want them to catch up, right, so and the U.S. the U.S. policy thrust now in in Washington. There's two policy thrusts now. Uh, uh, there's one piece of legislation that has sort of two halves. One is stop the China rise to your to this point we're talking about now. That is keep the U.S. technology as best you can out of China's hands, right. and the other half is lift the U.S. game. That's a way to think about this. Right. And that is subsidizing and investing in the U.S. to think on things that are important to, uh, to us. Um, so um, they, uh, they, they just, they are behind. And as they continue to work to catch up, why the West continues to make, uh, make further advances. And Washington's thrust clearly is to try try to keep them uh, keep them behind but that's been the thrust for 15 or 20 years not quite as explicit mm. will likely continue and do you think there was a there was a i guess an understanding now in washington that you know certainly in the early days when you know when the leadership in ai kind of came about in 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 china that they kind of were asleep at the wheel and didn't realize that they'd made so much progress is, is that a fair view? And then suddenly just realizing that on suddenly, I guess, I guess one of the things that Trump did highlight to the, to the American people, at least, uh, and, and to the world, um, the danger that uh, China uh, posed to them. So um, 
were they asleep at a wheel, do you think, um, you know, beforehand? Um, obviously, anyone who's been to China can never get, you know, it was never, you couldn't, you couldn't connect into Google or, or Facebook or any of those, you know, apps. They, they kind of locked those companies out right at the, right at the, uh, at the starting point. Well, I don't, I don't know why people are uh, surprised other than to say that, that uh, President Trump was a, uh, seems to me, was a Trump, it was a president like no other mm. that we've had in, in various, uh, various ways. And um, uh, he, he had uh, a sort of a unilateral approach to uh, China. Uh, the Biden administration is trying something different, um, uh, multilateral, mm -hmm. to find uh, countries with uh, uh, that have common interest with uh, with the U.S. Um, I don't know what's going to come uh, uh, come next, but um, uh, the two countries are completely interdependent. And if you if you think of the kind of a, a spectrum of country relationship, you've got You've got allies, and then you've got just you know uh, collaborators, and then you've got countries that are competitors, and then you've got you know two countries that are adversaries, and then you've got two countries that are enemies. I would say right now, you know, mid twenty twenty two, the U.S. China relationship is adversarial more than anything else. Now there's a real potential for common ground in uh, climate, which I believe is the only, only issue that really is gonna matter for the next uh, 10, 20 years and uh, beyond. But that's a, that's a area where you, there's common, uh, common ground. And I, and I think both countries realized uh, that uh, they don't want to lurch from adversary to enemy and any opportunities where they can simply compete or in the CO2 area collaborate, those are pluses. So this doesn't spin out, spin into something that's really uncontrollable for all of us. Right. Um, so there's a couple of other points on that. that I want to make, I, you know, I completely agree with you on the CO2 side. I think, um, just as maybe early iterations, uh, Steve Jobs and Tim Cook, you know, had done with Apple and got China. I guess Apple's and uh, and and Foxconn are one of the largest employers in uh, in China. Um, it's been a spectacular relationship in some respect. I guess it shows where it works well, um, and uh, it it is a model of where it works well. Um, um, and then you've got um, CO2, where if you, you know, so, some of the best solar companies and be it panel makers or technology within solar uh, or wind, you know, the Chinese are actually quite, you know, far ahead of many companies that uh, we, we actually also invested in uh, that um, they're successful there. Um, where do you think the CO2 collaboration, and of course we have now Elon Musk and the, and the Tesla factory and, you know, I guess he's the he's trailblazing what uh, Tim Cook and, and Steve Jobs had done, you know, previously uh, in China. But where's your, um, um, you know, is that a kind of fair reflection of how you think this is going within the kind of CO two arena? Yeah, the 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 all of the 
point I would add, Maz, is um, uh, China's, China's only public commitment on uh, CO2 is it, that it will peak by 2030. Right. They haven't specified a level. They've just said a peak. So right. we will know whether they've achieved that. Doesn't matter what they do between now and then. All that matters is, is 2031 lower than 2030. Right. This is not a commitment sufficient to make progress that the whole scientific community in the world thinks is, uh, is necessary. Um, I think the biggest surprise here is likely to be nuclear. Uh, nuclear got a bad name with the Fukushima in mm -hmm. 2011. Mm -hmm. But China has still a very large nuclear uh, uh, commitment, uh, and we think nuclear is going to become a giant factor all over the world. It takes a long-term uh, commitment, a, view, a viewpoint, to believe that, but we think that's the case. And most important on the whole climate issue is uh, it's not the technology. We're going to find all kinds of new technologies we keep do doing so uh, every year, every week, there's another announcement of one thing or another that's exciting. The issue is we have to find in the world leaders who are willing to take actions that have short-term pain, but long-term gain, and to accept that the long-term gain is going to happen after they are out of office, out of public life, and probably no longer even on this earth. If we can't find leaders in the world who can take actions like that, why uh, all of the CO2 actions will be, uh, uh, will be, uh, will be for naught. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't, I don't, uh, I don't see many leaders in the world who are willing to take stances like that. Absolutely. Well, I guess we haven't been in the private sector, right? <laughs> um, people are making, you know, inroads, although they, they do sort of diverge and think about Twitter for a little while. Um, so um, I want to just talk a little bit about um, um, COVID zero policy and, and how, mm -hmm. How do we get out of this, and um, and how, I guess, uh, um, you know, uh, China's trying to develop their their own mRNA um, technology. Right. So far, you, you know, we were discussing earlier a little bit hit and miss. What's your what's your prognosis on this, and uh, are they just stuck in this? I guess it's a time warp now, right? Because the whole world has kind of moved on, but they haven't. Well, uh, yeah, it's. it's... <laughs> This is this. It's a fascinating uh, issue. Uh, the first point I would make is that uh, uh, zero COVID uh, does not mean zero. It's not mean zero cases. Yeah. It means zero tolerance. When you find a case, you act quickly. You identify and isolate that uh, that case. And when you isolate, though, one of the one of the uh, consequences is 
if I'm isolated on a desert island, um, uh, I'm not likely to get COVID. But uh, it doesn't have anything to do with whether I have a vaccine or not. <laughs> I'm just not running into it. So in China, uh, uh, throughout this whole period, when a case case arises, they identify, they isolate, and so and they built their own uh, uh, conventional uh, uh, vaccine. We don't know whether they are how effective they are, because we don't know whether the low number of cases is because of the isolation effort or because of the uh, efficacy of the vaccine. Um, they're trying to build their own uh, domestic mRNA uh, vax. We're convinced they will not adopt the uh, Western uh, mRNA vaccine for a simple two simple political reasons. The first is the people would say, wait a minute, uh, after eight, this virus, this vaccine has been available eight, for 18 months and now you're finally allowing us to have it? Why, uh, what's, what was it that you were giving us before? Was it not effective? You know, this is crazy. But the second is, if they start to accept these Western mRNA vaccines, um, uh, they need, two, they need two, billion, two billion doses in a hurry. And what if the U.S. only is willing to send them a hundred million, uh, or shut or shuts them off, uh, and I'll say, "Wait, you got a vaccine, but I didn't." Uh, you know, what's going on here? So, this is a massive political problem uh, for them that won't allow them to go down that road. Um, but, uh, but you know, look at the numbers. The U.S. has had a million uh, million deaths, and you know, ninety million uh, ninety million cases. The China numbers are uh, 5,000 deaths. Let's assume that's an understatement by a factor of 10, uh, 50,000, 50, or a factor of 100, you know, 500,000, and their population is 1.4 billion in the US, three. Hmm. And so China took action earlier and more effectively, and that's really the key. That's part of uh, COVID right now, uh, zero COVID, is find a case, isolate them, and, um, and we think they're, we don't think they're gonna change. You can't fix something with nothing. They don't have anything else yet. So uh, I don't think it's actually, uh, we see the stories, car wreck makes a headline, uh, free flowing traffic on the highway doesn't make a headline. So it's ugly. We think that ugliness is not so much uh, that they don't like the anti uh, the uh, zero COVID policy, but rather they think it's been implemented uh, ineffectively. Absolutely, very very interesting. So, uh, a couple of last points um, before we uh, before we finish. Um, the first one is um, you know, trying to get some predictions from you over the next. You know, we don't really want short term predictions here, but you know, five ten years. You talked about CO two. Where do you think China is in, say, five or ten years' time? And uh, you know, where do you think, from a sector perspective, if you were, uh, you know, um, thinking about investing, you know, what sort of sectors would you be really focused on? We talked about CO two already, but outside, of, where do you think the the next big thing in China is going to, you know, develop over the next kind of five or ten years? So I think it. I think it will be a hard hard tech. 
Right. That's what that's what uh, that's where they are farthest uh, farthest behind. Uh, <clears throat> I think Beijing believe <clears throat> excuse me believes that too many of uh, the best and the brightest getting out of school have gone for uh, uh, soft tech. That's where the uh, that's where the money has been. I think Beijing is going to lean in the opposite direction on that. Um, uh, they and and it's very clear if you look at their most recent five-year plan versus uh, ten years ago. The five-year plan is all about uh, tech and up the value chain, uh, digital, the green revolution. It's not about textiles and apparel and uh, steel and cement. Those have all moved on uh, further. That we think that will continue, but their growth rate now, say five percent or so. Uh, 20 years ago, it was, you know, eight to 10, let's just take their numbers at, uh, at face value and give them whatever size haircut, you know, people want their growth rate. If now five is going to be three, mm. we know this yes. because as China gets richer and richer, um, the rate of gain of, uh, uh productivity gets slower and slower. So. Second derivative negative, we know on productivity. The closer they get to the frontier, which is represented by the US and Japan and Western Europe, productivity gains get slower. And so they're past that period in which the productivity gains were the fastest. Uh, so the productivity gains are going to be uh, um, maybe a percentage point lower in a decade than they are now. Mm. And the labor force, is now about flat. The number of people of working age who get up in the morning and go to the office or the factory or to the fields or whatever and make GDP, uh, that number now is flat. A decade from now, it'll be minus one. So if uh, Japan is a good example right now, Japan's GDP potential now is essentially zero. Minus one labor force plus one productivity is zero. China's a decade from now is going to be 4% productivity and minus one labor force is going to be three. And we don't, th we don't think this is even a problem. It's just a reality. China is not going to be able to change this. So um, that's very different than before. Uh, India is, is, is going, to, going to become a bigger economy and a bigger country. I shouldn't say that. A bigger contributor to, to global growth yeah, yeah, yeah. over that uh, period of time than uh, China because they are they are farther from the frontier on technology and they and their demographics are better than uh, China's. So China's going to um, be a, le a lesser factor, uh, but still a, a big factor and too big. To ignore. Yeah, it's it's it does kind of remind me, uh, in some respects, one of the first things you said is that China is so unique because of um, the, the the structure, i.e., one party, and you have a vision and you execute, you know, and there's no one else who's going to, you know, necessarily go against that. India is one of the largest democracies in the world, and right. and, and you, you changing governments, you know, people sort of getting in, in the way of each other. You know, it doesn't always mean that you, you you can actually 
you know, build that infrastructure or build that sort of um, uh, that growth rate that they will probably need at the same pace that China ever grew it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I like to say that uh, Brazil has been uh, uh, the best growth prospect for the next decade <laughs> for a hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> maybe one day. And, maybe, maybe and one day. It, <laughs> yeah, it has never quite, never quite uh, materialized. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah. Well, I, I suspect if you're going to make such a dramatic change, you can't really, you know, you can't really do it in a democratic, you know, uh, situation. You know, I know, I'm sure someone, some historian is going to come and challenge me on that. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess it's the speed and the pace at which they've grown is is just, you know, absolutely phenomenal. Um, that uh, I think you, you said right at the beginning will we'll probably never be repeated again uh, or unlikely to be repeated again, at least anyway. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think um, uh, uh, they, they, they ought to, uh, it will take, uh, they'll have to shoot themselves in the foot in one way or another yeah. to, uh, to lose this uh, advantage. But, you know, countries do that uh, now and then. And, and uh, I quite frankly, am not sure if I had to uh, try to pick a country that I thought had the most had the greatest chance for uh, sort of uh, political instability at home, which uh, damages that country's economy. Uh, I'm not sure what country, uh, a big country. I'm not sure what country I would put at put at the top of that list, but I'm not sure it would be China. Mm, mm, absolutely. So um, we're, we're coming towards the end. So one of the questions I've been meaning to, uh, you know, ask you. Um, obviously, you're 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 coming up to retirement. What are the the um, uh, what are some of your fondest memories in your in your you know um, illustrious um, career, uh, and specifically around China? And you know, what, what are one of these things that you're going to look back on and and say, well, that was that was fantastic. Well, I, uh, uh, I've been with, uh, I've known Ed Hyman for uh, 40 years mm. and, um, uh, I had a great time at Merrill Lynch, uh, you know, being their chief economic spokesman and traveling all over the world. And still most of my best friends are still old Merrill Lynch, uh, people and, um, I loved uh, working for uh, Laurie Klein at uh, Wharton, uh, a pure think tank. And, uh, you know, he was, he was the father of these large scale econometric models. And it was a dream job to get to work with him. And, and Mike Milken was like no other uh, as well. But having a chance to work with Ed and build uh, our little China team, uh, uh, it's, all, it's, it's all really about people who you work with, and those are the people who you work with on a day-to-day -day basis in your team or in side-by-side uh, -side teams and the clients. And um, when I had my little consulting company, the thing I missed about uh, in it is I didn't have enough client interaction to keep you know, fertilizing my own, uh, my own mind. Uh, but with Ed and uh, ISI uh, and and my team, Neil Wong, 
that I've been working with now as a collaborator for the last uh, 12 years is just uh, the best ever. And so it's all about the people and, and having, having things that, uh, that I'm engaged in, I'm interested in. I'll tell you one last uh, story. I had a little medical incident uh, 40 years ago and uh, woke up in a hospital uh, at you know 10 o'clock the next uh, morning. And uh, it was in one of those hospitals where it's a two-person two hospital <laughs> with a little curtain between me and the other bed. I never ever saw who was in the other bed, but uh, it was some man who sounded like he was an old guy of maybe 60. <laughs> I was old to be then. And he was having a discussion with his son-in-law. I figured out just from the discussion. And finally, the old man just blurted out. He said, look, just do it. Nobody likes their job. So this guy has probably said that, had probably been getting up every morning for 20 or 30 or 40 years, waiting, hating every minute of it, waiting for the weekend. And all weekend, he would be dreading Monday morning. We had to go back to do this job. I have never, ever felt success is doing what you enjoy. Yeah, It's not how many stars you have. It's doing what you enjoy. Yeah, no, I, that's a Don. That's absolutely very, very well said. I think uh, you know, we should certainly all, all remember that. Uh, particularly when sometimes I do feel like that with with market days like we've had over the last few days. But certainly, uh, um, it's uh, it, it's something we get up for the challenge. The and in the end, it is about your 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 colleagues who become your friends, you know, right. and partners. And I, and I think that. Uh, uh, um, is uh, is absolutely amazing and, and well said. So, Don, again, thank you very much for your time today. It was a, a real pleasure, a real honour. Uh, for those of you um, who uh, listen to this podcast, uh, we actually had Ed Hyman on the podcast uh, uh, a few episodes ago, so you can scroll down and take a look. Um, and uh, Don and, uh, and Ed and you know worked you know, uh, since uh, all that time in two thousand and uh, and nine. Um, and, uh, you know, we're just a real honor to, to know you and to know Ed, of course, uh, and obviously stay in touch, um, in your retirement. I, and no doubt you'll be coming through London and, uh, it'll always be, a, an honor and pleasure to spend time with you. And, and of course you're moving now to the East coast <laughs> after all right. this time, uh, probably would have been more convenient if you did it 10 years ago, Don, but, uh, um, uh, good luck with that. And we wish you all the best here from, from EFG. Good. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate that. I've, I've enjoyed our friendship for so many years. And uh, I'm going to stay engaged in one way or another. I'm sure I'm going to get to London. And uh, you're going to be the first guy I'm going to call. Brilliant. Well, so thanks, ag thanks again for the opportunity to, to be on today. And uh, we will definitely stay in touch. So that wraps us up for uh, Beyond the Benchmark uh, this week. Uh, again, probably one for me for, for my replay. But um, um, that, was, uh, that was good. Of course, if you have any questions or you would like to uh, sponsor a guest, you know, please feel free to email at beyond at fgam.com. So with that, we'll speak to you next week. Thank you.